Hello, and a very warm welcome to this edition of the Africa Legal Podcast. And I'm thrilled to be joined today by Hugo Kutsia. Hugo is the head of the Africa practice for leading international law firm CMS. And we're going to link to Hugo's full biography in the podcast description. Now, we're here to cover a range of topics, but I'm going to start with uh, kind of grabbing the bull by the horns here, Hugo. And I think it's fair to say that awareness of the CMS history and pedigree in Africa falls short of both your real capabilities and history. Now, I know that the firm's physical footprint spans across Nairobi, Johannesburg, Luanda, Mombasa, Algiers, and Casablanca, and you've undertaken work in many more jurisdictions. So it's this context which leads us to be, you know, excited to be working together to spread awareness of the firm's, you know, true offering and value. So I'll, I'll get to my point. In short, what is driving this increased engagement with African markets? You know, why are we having this conversation today? Why is there such a keen focus on remedi- remedying any gaps as to awareness to what the firm can offer? You know, why Africa? Why why now? Well, thanks, Tom. Thanks, thanks very much. Um, I think, you know, one of my uh, colleagues once said to me, CMS is probably the largest firm that nobody knows about in the world. Um, I, I don't agree with that for sure, but in the context of Africa, perhaps it's worthwhile exploring that a bit. Um, you know, in, in terms of Africa, CMS, we have been, actually, in, in reality, we've been around advising uh, in Africa for over 50 years already mm-hmm. or so. Um, we are, as you mentioned, a few of the jurisdictions where we are, I, th- I think, what we uh, assessed uh, when we had an internal sort of strategic assessment in around 2019 is that we've got these excellent parts of the CMS practice that operate across large parts of Africa. You know, that's we've got people operating in Francophone Africa, Lusophone Africa, Anglophone Africa. Um, but but in reality, we we, we lacked a bit of sort of uh, maybe a, a, this sort of what I would call this strategic zoosh, so to speak, to to think about how, how do we pull this together? How do we, for borrowing a phrase of a, a famous corporate, how do we sort of make it work better together? Um, and um, what we did was we, we, we sat down 2019, we looked at pulling together all this expertise we've got across the whole of, of CMS, um, you know, taking account of the fact that CMS, you know, is, is actually absolutely huge as a firm, right? Something like 8,000 staff, you know, 45 countries, 80 offices. But in the context of Africa, as you and I know, that means nothing. Um, you know, Africa is a massive continent. It's a place of great contrasts, different jurisdictions, different legal systems, uh, you know, completely different, sitting next to each other for a number of years. We felt that its need, the need was there for us to, to, um, to make, make, make it a bit clearer that we're all pulling in the same direction, that people actually should be aware of what we're doing. Um, and this expertise and experience that our clients were aware of maybe needed a bit more pushing or publicity. And uh, so we got together, um, you know, when we got together and, and pulled this together, we put it under the banner of what we call CMS Africa. Banner is perhaps not the right terminology, but, you know, we, we put it under the, the umbrella of what we call CMS Africa. And at the same time, 
we expanded, uh, we, 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 we formalized arrangements with colleagues in South Africa as well as Kenya. Um, and it, it, it kicked off, um, you know, in, in, in spectacular fashion for us. We, you know, got a number of mandates, Pan-African mandates as a result. We all of a sudden had exposure to, to um, some of these guys that we, we, we brought into, into CMS and, and they gave us the benefit of their experience and expertise. And we took uh, we, we we took that further, and and it started to grow. So so what we're talking about here is perhaps not so much. You know, I, I think it, we've always been engaged and involved in Africa. Uh, we've got the expertise and experience. We've pulled it together, and we're starting to um, tell people a bit more about it. I think you know um, it is it is important, and, and uh, you, you know we'll consider whether you could quote me for this, Tom. But it, you know. We have, uh, when I, I spoke to somebody once who's uh, one of, was a client or a new client in uh, a West African jurisdiction, and I said to him, we CMS, and he said to me, that's news to him because all that he knows about CMS is that it's the name of the local bus stop. <laughs> okay, so that, that puts it in perspective for you. You look at the continent you're talking about, that, you know, it puts it into perspective. You can be whoever you are in terms of an international law firm. You need to be present. You need to have dedication. Uh, you know, to the continent, to the people, and need to be seen on the ground. We've been there, but it's about telling people that we do that. So that's I think, where we are. I can. I think what's refreshing here, I think, is a firm honestly appreciating at what stage they are at in an African journey. You know, being willing to have that. You know, a quick giggle about the bus stop anecdote. You know, that doesn't take away from the fact that there are people who are engaging with CMS lawyers without necessarily knowing what that could mean. So simply educating, you know, winning these Pan-African mandates shows that you're right on the right course. And all it is is saying, look, you're engaging with one piece of the pie and it's doing well for you. Simply bring their attention to the fact that there's a whole additional capability behind it. It's just exciting for everyone. So I think it's good to recognize how localized you have to become. All the little jigsaw pieces were there. And, you know, it's fun being part of, you know, putting that puzzle together. So I think it's 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 a good a good answer, uh, a good amount of understanding. And hopefully, it you know, the rest of this podcast serves a purpose in doing exactly what you've no, talked absolutely. about, there, which is which is educating. Uh, you know, speaking of educating here, I want to dive into your personal uh, kind of practice area of focus, which is predominantly in the energy uh, and infrastructure space with a specific interest in climate change. Now, Certain African markets are theoretically incredibly well-placed to become leading low-carbon and renewable energy producing jurisdictions, but such opportunities have yet to be realised en masse, if at all. What do you put such delay or missed opportunity down to? And secondly, what are the key hurdles you see to African markets increasing the speed of their own energy energy transitions? Right. So, uh, Tom, how, how long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> I can do a little uh, beep when we're getting yeah. close, but it's a big uh, question. Absolutely. A big question. Absolutely. And, and I think it, it's an important question. Look, you know, we, we've, as I said to you before, We've worked in, in in a lot of you know many jurisdictions, so we have the experience firsthand as to what 
um, the 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 you know the issues are or, or the problems, um, probably you know hurdles or um, roadblocks, as I say. Um, and I think you know it's clear that Africa lags behind in terms of its ability to move towards renewable energy sources. Um, Africa, you know, if you, if you think, somebody told me, you know, in terms of the um, percentages, you know, they, they've, for the size of the population, the the number of people with access to things like electricity is is is, is minuscule, um, you know, and and it sort of pushes us down the route of I, I think the core problem here. There's a couple of uh, hurdles, but I think the, the the core one that we'll always come back to here, Tom, is is money. So it is about um, cost, somebody being able to afford things. It's about the, 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 the lack of access to cash to do this. The, 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 the fact is post-COVID, you know, pre-COVID, they, you know, Africa has always had issues around debt and certain countries or certain jurisdictions have had um, particular issues and, and only qualified, you know, if they were ticking all the boxes for the World Bank or the IFC to get funding. Um, and as a result, um, you know, it, processes were slow, but things were starting to pick up. But COVID, has, I think, actually uh, made it worse. Um, you know, countries have gone into more debt, you know, so where debt was perhaps sovereign debt, but were postponed as a result of COVID. We are now in a scenario where you have countries that have been downgraded as a result of that, they, you know, their ability to repay their debt, to get access to money. Um, that in turn means if they have to implement a policy of uh, transition um, from fossil fuels through to, um, you know, green energy, if we can call yeah. it that, um, that, there's an issue there, isn't it? Because if you are, if, if, if you do not have the money to, to implement and deal with challenges, and here comes the other hurdles, underdeveloped infrastructure. Yeah. It's great to see we're going to implement it, but we don't have, you know, a number of countries don't have access to the infrastructure to build. Okay, it's great, going to build solar farms, uh, you know, or, or wind farms in spots where it's, it's uh, you know, the, the, the scientists tell you it's the best place to do, but there's no grid, all right? Yeah. To the grid. Yeah. And my understanding is because of the lower megawatt or even <laughs> kilowatt outage of the 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 standalone renewable projects such as tidal or solar, the requirement for a grid to join up all of these micro producers is absolutely essential. Like if you've got four nuclear power plants, each one of them could power a, a, a large number of houses and you could just about have a functioning kind of electrical environment. But when you've got micro production levels, that grid is absolutely essential. Yes, correct. And 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 hence where you've seen um, and the work we're involved in um, for investors backed by government or multinational funds sitting behind them are pumping money into uh, as you sort of touched on microgrid projects, you know, to help assist um, communities, um, you know, in, in rural areas, etc., to set up a mini grid for them to be able to generate and live off that for their immediate requirements. But if you have, um, you know, in, in some countries where there actually have been huge, uh, you know, wind farms established, it took longer to you know, to get the grid set up and the arrangements set up uh, with people for for constructing that building, planning, 
etc., than it took to set up the actual, you know, to build, to construct the actual windmill yeah. itself. So, you know, it is, and, and, and it sort of takes us back to money. And then the other, the other factor here with the underdeveloped infrastructure, the other factor is, unfortunately, is, is politics. Because if you are sitting in parliament or in the government of a particular country and the country is struggling financially, you are going to prioritize, aren't you, in terms of how you apply money and how that is dealt with in terms of the immediate needs of the people. So, you know, are you going to apply or go and borrow at exorbitant rates, uh, you know, to build a wind farm out somewhere? Or are you going to take some of that money and maybe, you know, this is not the case, but, you know, let's say as an example, maybe it's easier to pump or cheaper to pump money into a cold fire, coal fired power station. Yeah. Um, you know, South Africa is a typical example where they've, you know, they've had, they've got an enormous electricity access problem um, through years of neglect of the grid uh, and letting uh, ESCOM run with things. So all of a sudden there's, there's an issue in terms of there's not, there's the, the, the demand outstrips what's being generated. Um, we have had, South Africa is one of the countries in Africa has been the most successful in its renewable energy program. It's in Morocco, for example, as well. But it, it's um, it's got this fantastic renewable energy program, but it's all underpinned by ESCOM in the end. And it's also very pricey. So yeah. it's got, you know, it had, they started off on their half-constructed coal-fired power stations. So, you know, when we had the recent COP26, I think it was probably mentioned, you know, South Africa was one of the few places that actually... Um, we're still piling in a, a lot of money into building coal-fired power stations because that's that's cheaper. It's an easier, immediate route to get it, that immediate payoff. Do you feel like it's a political? The the politics really manifest here when you're looking at uh, uh, length of time to payoff, i.e. the infrastructure required for renewable energy to really take off will take. X number of years, and if that number of years happens to be longer than a political term, for example, for either yep. a party yes. or an individual, then the interest and the engagement in that instantly wanes because the political payoff just isn't going to be there. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm going to be political and say, yes, Tom, I, I, I think that is potentially correct. I can't confirm or deny, but yes, I think <laughs> that is the case. Um, you know, I, you are you, you're correctly identifying it, but it's also... To be fair, you know, to poli- to some politicians, they're also it's about re-election, but it's also about how much money they've got yeah, and how exactly. they should allocate that. Um, luckily, in in somewhere like South Africa, um, they've also now the government have said um, we're looking at um, policies changing, uh, you know, legislation so that local authorities can can go um, and and sort out their own um, electricity generation, so you can have auctions where people can go and buy electricity at a, at a private level because what's happened is the, you know, the massive mining industry have said we need access to electricity and we would, you know, fund this or do it ourselves as well if we need to. So there's a, they, they're looking at, at changing uh, legislation policy to allow for this sort of, um, let's call it private auction type process. So, you know, that, that, that's an example, but, you've, you know, there, there are other places. So uh, as I said to you, you know, for example, I mentioned the the wind farm, you know, some distance out. That, Kenya was an example of, of of that in terms of Lake Turkana, where it took a long time to get it sorted. So, so you know, just to go back to what we talked about in terms of 
roadblocks or hurdles. I said to you, underdeveloped infrastructure, it's it's the, the dosh, it's the money, isn't it? It's mm. politics. Um, and linked to politics is also, and a number of these is um, the matter of procurement and procurement legislation and procurement regime and how people go through procurement and what they need to do to get access to being awarded contracts as opposed to, you know, private uh, contract awards. That, 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 that is an issue as well. And, and in some places... The procurement uh, regime is not necessarily as developed. So this is where international firms come in, like CMS as well, and assist with looking at the procurement program, uh, whether that is for the government, uh, the, the local government themselves, or whether that's on the back of a, a mandate from the World Bank. You know, we, we, you know, we, we've sort of, you know, they, they have regular programs as you know so that you know whether they look at the ppp procurement regime in a country what's the issues there you know or, or the energy regime so the procurement is is an issue but it can be that's where lawyers can help you can't deal with the politics on the ground of actually awarding the contracts but you can assist um and then i think the other <clears throat> i think i i don't know if it if it, it will be a hurdle i'm hoping it won't i think it will push um african countries and governments perhaps down the route. Um, but, you know, and I thought I'll mention it here for you while I think about it. Um, we've got, obviously, um, the very topical aspect in, uh, of ESG, right? So yeah. ESG is the new vibe, the word applied everywhere you go. ESG, as far as I'm concerned, ESG in certain parts of Africa is, is, is different to what ESG means when we sit and talk about, around an ESG roundtable in London, for example. You know, um, you've got um, the huge organizations, the funds, um, you know, multilaterals, etc., who are advancing money <clears throat> to countries and governments um, to implement projects. But they are all obviously coming under pressure to make sure that they tick all the ESG boxes, right? And the ESG boxes that they tick are not necessarily the same ESG boxes that people who are looking to benefit from this. 100%. Yeah. yeah. yeah so, so you've got, uh, I mean, I think it, 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 what it will do is it, it will help move projects. It may help move um, some of these other hurdles where people are using, you know, going for coal-fired power stations, etc. It may help move that because people aren't going to get money if they don't tick these boxes. But... At the same time, you know, you've got a core underlying problem of deprivation, you know, uh, of, of, of access to basic facilities and things like that. Which I think we, we just don't want to see that wasted opportunity, because if someone genuinely embraces the ESG agenda and it's to me, it's usually the, um, the S that is dropped. Uh, quite quickly, you know, the, the the genuine opportunity for societal impact and local community engagement is what matters uh, most in Africa and the yeah. opportunity there. So if we simply focus on, you know, uh, this is what we have to tick and this is what we have to show for that ESG linked money to come in. Yes, you're getting funded, but what an opportunity missed. And it really does open the, the, the gates to, you know, so-called greenwashing, uh, yeah. uh, for example. I mean, does, does that resonate with you? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think that is correct. Um, it, it, does, it does create a problem. Um, but, you know, you, the thing is, you have to learn, and that's hopefully something that where lawyers can help as well, is 
you have to bring these two sides together so they both have the same expectation of what ESG is. Absolutely. And what you're looking to achieve with it and what the requirements are. Um, because otherwise, as you say, there is the risk of people just think, we just need to tick a few boxes to, to try and get our hands on, on some money. Uh, and and that, that will work for us. And that is is going to be a, an ongoing issue. I think I think as the multilaterals change their policies, etc., we will it will be tested, I think, to see how much uh, people can actually change to qualify for the money or whether it's easier to go for money from elsewhere. Um, but having said that, even, you know, we did a, a survey report on the Belt and, and Road Initiative uh, and Chinese involvement and Chinese money into Africa. And even in respect of, I say even, but, you know, what we've seen is on um projects which are now done via China where some influence of the Belt and Road Initiative in there, there there's all there are also pressures there around ESG. So yeah. everybody's start, everybody's starting to feel the pressure. So you know it will happen, but I think in Africa it's going to be a question of the same understanding and the same expectation for it to work. I agree. And actually, you know, Hugo, we had we have some data from a recent survey that, that we actually did with Africa Legal's community where we asked, can African countries be expected to bypass high carbon energy generation in combating energy poverty and instead focus on renewable energy? Now, your statement around this being a, a money issue, not a uh, motivation issue is very well evidenced here because just under 70% of uh, respondents agreed that or answered that African countries can be expected to bypass high carbon energy in the pursuit of more sustainable renewable energy. So it, re- it is a, a infrastructure and a cash point yeah. rather yeah. than, you know, the, uh, well, the, the developed nations got to build their wealth on the back of high carbon. We get to do the same. It's, it's it's once again the wonderful nature that Africa can bring, where it says no, no, no. We we realise that's that's not good for anyone. We're willing to put in the time, the effort, the energy, and the education. Give us the tools. We'll finish the job. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think it's it's very true what you've said, and I was really pleased, if not a tiny bit surprised, with the outcomes from that 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 uh, that survey as well. Mm. Uh, Hugo, I'm going to pivot us back mm. to a, a more general kind of view at, at, at the CMS brand. Now, yeah. the, there's three key pillars here, and it's law, tax, future. Now, without explanation, those can be three powerful words. You know, they mean a lot of different things to different people. But I'm interested, in an African context, what is it of those three which you really want your practice to, to lead in? Law, tax, future. With regard to the Africa practice, what what one is the, uh, the the shining light to your mind? Well, I'll tell you. I, I, I'll, I'll let you know which one I think is the shining light. But I first have to um, break a lance, or whatever, however they say it, for my tax colleagues, because you know what it's like having tax colleagues. They you can't go uh, uh, around without saying anything about tax, and that in particular. I mean, it is everywhere. It, it really, it is as much as yes, yes we, we have yeah, that inside yeah. joke with law and tax. I mean, yeah, it yeah. really does permeate every yeah. level. But I, yeah, I, go I, on, Hugo. I, no, I agree. Look, I, all I want to say is that, that it, I won't let it sort of go without saying tax has been a, a, a huge sort of underlying pillar for the CMS Africa practice. 
in particular across Francophone and Lusophone Africa. Um, we've had years and years. I mean, you know, some of our uh, officers in particular, sort of Algiers, Morocco, have, have had years of expertise in, yeah. in tax, local tax, and, and investment into the various jurisdictions. Um, you know, and in South Africa, for example, again, strong tax presence and doing work with um, key jurisdictions uh, such as Mauritius for that. But from from the CMS Africa perspective, I think the most important is future. Uh, I think that just has to be, that is, is, is us within Africa. We are looking to the future. We're looking to the opportunities that there are for Africa. We just touched on some of the problems now. But you know, looking looking towards the future, with a, with a positive spin on it, uh, you know, we've got um, opportunity in terms of trade and trade finance. We've got the uh, you know, one way or another, from a, a law firm perspective, the the African Trade uh, Agreement is, yep. is going to deliver work. I think it's going to take, in my own view, a long time before it delivers what it's supposed to deliver because. Um, you know, as you know, a lot of um, for a lot of African countries, it's 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 cheaper to import from Europe or the East than than, than trade, trade with each other. I think we need a couple of good case studies in that. Yeah. I think there's yeah. going to be maybe East Africa is where we're, we're potentially yes. going to see this yeah. payoff, you know, which already has quite a collegiate, you know, community-driven uh, 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 focus, maybe the Great Lakes region in particular. Mm. And I think if there's a few jurisdictions that can show how it's done, it will then be a bit of a domino effect and we're really going to see people monopolize on what it means to have tariff-free kind of, um, yeah. you know, cross-border access. But my, my not requested, but my perspective given. <laughs> no, absolutely. No, no, no I, I agree with that. I mean, there, there has been some attempts already in, in East Africa, um, you know, and so they, they do sort of lead the charge, I think, to a degree mm. compared to, so to the, like, the Ohada region or the Central Africa region, you know. So I, I think it does... It does sort of lead the charge, and that's probably right with sort of the good opportunity is for it. But you know, so so we, we you know we're looking towards the future trade, right, with with positive glasses on or lenses. Uh, um, the other area we 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 are seeing um, stuff happening, and we are looking and hoping is in the area of um, fintech and payment services, payment platforms. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for sure, in particular in West Africa, we've been quite busy, uh, and or we've been advising international investors and uh, digital and payment platforms who are looking all over the place. Um, and so I think that that's definitely uh, an area for the future for us. Um, the, the other one that we are already involved in um, and we see more is what I call digital infrastructure. So, you know, um, that sort of um, telecoms, broadband, that type of stuff. It's still yep. got a way to yep. go. But, data um, centers. Yes, that's yep. right. So, I mean, for, for now, yeah, all the majors are putting up data centers all over the place. Um, but I think, you know, it, it can potentially go beyond that in, in particular jurisdictions where you've got the right infrastructure. Um, the, the other thing is um, not, 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 not really an exciting, but for the lawyers, but things like cybersecurity, um, you know, um, and service uh, security, data processing, there's a, we're doing a lot of work around that already. Um, so I think it will become better. Uh, and I think there's scope for growth there. So I, I can see that as a, as a, as a positive area. For Absolutely. Us to yep. further. Um, I do think that the 
historic focus has been on debt finance. There's still going to be more work and more opportunity in debt finance. The theory is there should be cheaper debt financing available now. Um, I'm, I'm not convinced. So we'll see. We'll see how that goes because people are starting to uh, funds are now. You know, pre pre uh, COVID, we certainly had and acted for a fair number of uh, international investment funds who were looking to get more actively involved in projects, yeah. um, whether it's money grid projects or otherwise. You know, so people sort of supplementing and in certain cases replacing the multilaterals. That, that, that's been sort of set back a bit, unfortunately, as a result of COVID. But we've we, we've we've seen some increased interest there coming through. Um, so I, I think we are, you know, for for, for, for those areas for starters, I, I think I can see positive uh, involvement from our side. I haven't mentioned the usual, you know, the stuff that I work in. So, you know, energy and infrastructure, I think still remains an area, but it's, it, as you all also touched on, it's around <clears throat> probably more bespoke um, energy or infrastructure projects rather than major massive ones, which take a long time and necessarily don't always happen, unfortunately. So it, people, uh, certainly investors, infrastructure investors with experience in Africa are pretty finickety around what they look at and what yeah. they're prepared to invest in. Um, so there's, there's, there'll be more people hunting for, for fewer projects, but we are hopeful those things will expand a bit. Uh, a couple, couple of good case studies again. Let's uh, let's see what happens in Ethiopia in particular. I think some of the mass transit infrastructure works that are that are going on could be could be of interest. Uh, I think those investors usually just look for a couple of good roadmaps, and then they can yes. be replicated kind of at scale. So interesting to see opportunity yes. abounds as as per the standard when it comes to African markets now. Yes. Yeah. Speaking of future, let's crystal ball a bit here. You know, as the world continues to navigate the myriad of problems and challenges, what is the firm doing and planning to do to continue offering exceptional client value and service, both on and in relation to African markets? I mean, the, the short question here is, what are your key targets for 2022 in the near future? Well, there's two legs to that. Firstly, in terms of what are we doing to uh, <clears throat> continue providing services of uh, excellent value to clients and, and look towards the future. And, and there's things to consider, such as um, our uh, legal tech, right? Developing yep. AI, uh, assisting with things like evidence collection, review and disclosure technology, um, looking at... Um, we haven't implemented it yet, but there we, we have a project um, that we, we've applied successfully elsewhere, which is essentially um, providing legal services to startups uh, in terms of a particular program. It's called the Equip Program. Okay. Um, and, and that is a specific dedicated services towards startups. Um, the, the, there is a potential, there's potential for something like that to be applied in key jurisdictions in Africa. Well, there'd be no shortage of uptake, I can assure of that, yeah. I mean, we've rolled that out in, in you know, a number of jurisdictions, for example, LATAM as well, you know, so again, it's 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 not a definite, but it, it's, sure. a, it's a bespoke type product that we're yep. looking at and, um, you know, assisting us with that also, whilst I remember, I would be in trouble if I didn't remember, our <clears throat> digital platform that we've developed called Lupal, 
yeah. which is essentially a legal services platform, which gives you like a, um, a, a, a client or customer can go on it and has a through sort of 360 degree access to legal services from yeah. various legal providers. Um, and we have had buy-in globally on that. Um, and there is definite interest in Africa and <clears throat> our colleagues on the ground in Africa are also very keen to push this further. So I suppose what I'm saying to you is we are, and maybe I should have mentioned this at the previous question, Tom, but you know, we are looking forward uh, in terms of using legal tech, um, using innovation in terms of dealing with people like startups. We are looking at uh, platforms that can standardize or help, help grow legal services. Um, and in that regard, Africa is no exception. You know, uh, in fact, it will probably move quicker than others, um, you know, based on previous uh, history with things like the mobile phone, et cetera. You know, so I think we are looking to deliver value for clients by moving into future facing areas that will assist them, make things easier for them around particular types of work that we can do and and, and simplify. Um, I think <clears throat> in terms of <clears throat> what are we looking at as CMS Africa for the future, for areas? <clears throat> I think we are not, uh, and I, I've said this to many people before, we, we're not in the, in the business of opening up offices everywhere um, to say we, we can cover all jurisdictions everywhere uh, in anything you want. We are, we are looking to provide <clears throat> services across key identified sectors that we have as a firm, we are doing this in, 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 in particular key regions. So we follow a regional approach, um, but it's ultimately for us client driven. So where our clients have a need in a particular region in Africa or a country or a city or a town or a house, you know, we will provide <laughs> that if that's yeah. what they need, but we identify that with them and assist and push for that. Um, to deliver the service that's needed. And, you know, just at the previous question I asked, I, I answered around, you know, key areas where we think there'll be growth. You know, we both talked about trade finance, talked about debt, you know, fintech, payment platforms and the like. These are all areas which are interested and people want to uh, want to address and, and deal with. And I think we, we see these as growth areas. We, we don't see growth from our perspective in Africa necessarily as a geographical thing. It's not what we see. At the same time, we're also not people <clears throat> sitting in an office in Europe or the US just dipping into Africa, providing legal service for a big acquisition, international deal, and then going out. So, you know, it is, it is important to us that you have to be there or that you have to have knowledge of the market, the people, the contacts that you can deal with to deliver that service. Um, but you, you, you can't be... You know, you, you cannot be everything to everyone in Africa. Africa no, is, is a big place. And Hugo, I think that the client centricity that you mentioned, and it really does have to be at the heart of what you do. I've said it before, you know, you, you usually can't go far wrong if everything you're doing is to the betterment of your, your customers. And, you know, some of those solutions you mentioned, they sound like, you know, it's, it's real digital empowerment. You know, if you're allowing your sales and your services to be accessed uh, more easily, more affordably, uh, more readily, 
then that, you know, in itself frees up your in-house legal clients to be thinking differently, to be motivating, doing different things, looking at different areas. And that grows them as a customer as well. So it's not just about servicing the immediate needs of those clients. It's about mm-hmm. delivering services and delivering access that allows them to grow both in their own businesses and as a customer. And I think the African in-house legal community are brimming with ideas and uh, and opportunities and, and value for their businesses. And it's those kinds of value-added services and accessible services that are going to allow them to shine. Because, gosh, there is a lot of talent. Uh, it just needs the opportunity to really come to the forefront. You know, you're not a document dumping ground. You're a strategic, you know, asset to the company. So I'm a big, big fan of any firm that can help my in-house friends really shine. No, look, and, and I completely agree with you around um, <clears throat> people who are dynamic, energetic, who just need the opportunity for release, uh, you know, to share those ideas and get involved with that rather than, <clears throat> as, and, as you say, being, um, you know, the place where we just send uh, documents for cheap uh, legal services work. You know, it, it's not the way that we view Africa. In fact, it's not the way we, we, we view legal services generally. Um, but in terms of Africa, it, it remains a priority. It's discussed. This is the other thing um, to be aware of within CMS at our overall global executive committee meeting we have regular monthly meetings and there are representatives from cms africa at every one of those meetings excellent africa is a topic at every one of those meetings and whatever the size of the firm is in africa um, everybody gets an opportunity to say and talk about their priorities and what they want to achieve and how they can help and how we can assist across CMS. So it remains, so what that shows to you, it remains a key priority um, for the firm. And we've just saved you a lot of time at the next meeting, Hugo, because we can just play them this podcast. It's a perfect, <laughs> an elegant solution. Absolutely. I agree. It will uh, make them listen. <laughs> well, Hugo, listen, I hate to say it, that does bring us to time. And I really have enjoyed my conversation with you today. So thank you so much for joining me. No problem. It's my pleasure. And as always, a very big thank you to all of our listeners. Now, if you are new to the Africa Legal podcast, be sure to peruse our entire back catalogue, which is available wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. And as always, be sure to visit us at africalegal.com for all the news, views and insights that improve your life as a modern African legal practitioner. So without further ado, this has been Tom and Hugo, and we're signing off for the Africa Legal Podcast.